I'm originally from the Midwest. It's um, boring and cold and flat, and the people are just like the landscape. We moved to Savannah, Georgia. Um, I went to high school there. When I was a kid, I didn't really... I mean, I knew, like, my dad wasn't emotionally present. I just kind of wrote that off, and, like, I knew my mom, like... I just thought she had a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions. It was just really bizarre to be raised between those two extremes. It's like a Minnesota winter in a Texas summer. There was a blizzard that came through when I was, you know, I don't know, 11, 12. And it was colder in Omaha than it was in Anchorage, Alaska for a solid, like, month and a half. Right after winter, we had a big tornado that ripped through and basically just wiped out a huge chunk of Omaha. And my mother was like, okay, I'm done. This is, I'm, I don't want to do this, I'm out. So she chose It's Extreme, which is the best way, I think, now to describe my mother. She's very extreme. It was just really bizarre, moving from one extreme, Omaha is very cold, to Savannah, Georgia, which is, you know, basically a swamp. People there are religious and uh, conservative, and it's just, it's a weird place. Albeit beautiful, it's a beautiful city, and I'm glad I was raised there. I was not popular. I was curly-haired and gay and fat, (laughs) and uh, I listened to The Cure, and, you know, I was a sad gay kid who didn't have any support at home, and I didn't have any support in school. But, you know, years later, you look at things like, well, he was such a pleasure to have in class. He has so much potential. And you're like, oh, yeah, all right. And I didn't see it then because I was young and I didn't have any, you know, my parents didn't give me any self-esteem or self-worth. I realized that I always, like, preferred to be around guys. You know that you're different, but you don't know how. Especially, we had a family friend slash babysitter named Andy, who was a few years older, and he was just a total dreamboat. You know, you, you get red cheeks, and you feel flustered, and then eventually you realize, oh, oh, okay. It's not just that one guy. And when you start to develop as a sexual person, you start to realize, well, some people start to realize that it's also sexual. So you just kind of ride with it. When I was 13, my mother, her father died and her youngest brother died. Her youngest brother and her had a huge age gap between them. So she was more like a parent to my uncle. So for her, it was like losing a child. And she just like fell into this, I don't know, unimaginable grief. She had a back injury and her doctor just gave her pills. And she became that mom. As a kid, I didn't, I don't know, I just didn't think anything of it. But as I got older, she just sank more and more into her own. 
you can't really compartmentalize things like that. You don't have that ability for critical thinking, and that's kind of something your parents are supposed to teach you. Well, they didn't have it, obviously, so they didn't necessarily teach it to me. My parents divorced shortly after her family members died. She literally had free reign with no one to check her. My mom had a lot of money. She worked for a stock company. Um, she's actually pretty successful in stocks. And she did really fucked up things in front of me. Like, I used to drive my mother to buy pills from this hooker. She would just straight up snort Oxycontins in the back of my mom's car. And I'm a 15-year-old kid in the driver's seat. After that lady would get out and leave, and I'm like, Mom, do you see how inappropriate this is? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm doing that with my friends. But that's not a relationship that we should share or have. And she would just get so angry that often it wasn't worth it. Even trying to be supportive in a way like, hey, maybe if you look at it from this point of view instead, even that came across as some unforgivable criticism or critique on who she was as a person or her performance as a parent. My mom always told me that she wanted me to be a therapist, right? Oh, I think you're so good with people. You give such good advice. I, I think you should go into therapy. You'd be such a good therapist. And then years later, it occurred to me that she wanted me to be a therapist because she needed a therapist. So she created this like really kind of codependent, like, I want you to go out into the world but when you take initiative to do so, I'm going to break down your self-esteem so you don't feel like you can. I, I think it was very much a projection of how she felt about herself. Um, I also think that she thought that I would be the person to cater to her and take care of her. You know, and I was the responsible kid. I got my siblings up to go to school. I did laundry because, you know, at a certain point she was too fucked up on muscle relaxers or painkillers to know what was going on. So I made dinner, like I did the laundry, I took care of things. And you know, by that point in time, you're, you're a depressed teenager. What are you going to do? And I think in her mind, you know, she wanted me to be a therapist, but then on another level, I think she had kind of already given up. You know, children should have the space to be children and make mistakes. Kids need to do chores. They need to recognize that you need to do your laundry and you need to cook food and pay bills. And But it, it, I think it went beyond that. It went to the, like a codependence. She used me being smart as like a point of her being a good parent. Almost that narcissistic, like... This is a reflection of how good of a mom I am. But then she would kind of use it against me. You know, whenever she felt, I think, that it threatened her. When I applied to college, um, my first choice was NYU. I got accepted. She didn't congratulate me. She didn't 
I, she had nothing to do with it, really. But she sure as shit got on the phone and, oh my god, you'll never believe what happened, blah, blah, blah. And then right before I was packing up to leave, she was like, you know, you're never going to make it. You're never going to do that. You're never going to finish. That's You're not smart enough. She really liked to build people up just to kind of snatch the rug from under them. Her father died in June. I came out in July. And then my uncle Eugene died in November. It was a big, crazy year, right? She had just gotten back from San Francisco. When she came back, she was like, I am just amazed at what you would see on the street. She had a lot of moral opinions on what was happening and how that evolved for her. And finally, I was like, all right, you got to tell her. Because she's not going to shut up. Like, it's just going to be years of, you know, it's disgusting what you see on the streets. I sat her down and just point blank, yo, I'm gay. The first thing she said, well, we have to tell your father. And there was nothing said literally at all until he got home later that night, sat me down at the kitchen table. And, and actually she was really pissed. And um, she made me look at him in the eye and tell him. I think in her mind, that was one of the things that she didn't know how to deal with as a parent. Like she never thought about it. And I think that my father had. Because his response was, huh, really? I could see that. That was it. And I think because he didn't give her the shock response or there wasn't like an emotional attachment to how he dealt with it. I think that like fueled that over emotional response. And she saw his response and just immediately started crying like. You know, that was right around the time um, uh, Matthew Shepard. That was a big deal, you know? Like, we look at queer identity now and through a much different lens. But that was shocking nationwide. So as soon as I came out, she bought me a cell phone. Um, I had to check in with her every 30 minutes. I mean, we didn't necessarily have to talk, but I had to let her know, yo, I'm alive. It took her about a year and she was like, well, I'm going to love you anyway, which really was more about her being a good mom than it was about actually accepting me as a person because she would still say things like, well, I just don't think that gay people should be able to have children because it makes life for the child harder. And she was consistent in her ignorance. Like, I don't think interracial couples should be able to have children because it makes the child's life more difficult. And it's like, I'm a product of a straight relationship and my life is, it's not like it's easy. My biological father had moved out by the time I was 15. I, I tried to get along with him. I tried to like him. We, we saw each other infrequently, uh, mostly on holidays. I'd go over there and stay the night with him and uh, it was just a little weird. And I go home and that was it. He's a good friend. 
You know, I don't think he's a bad person. I don't think he has any ill intent. Um, he's not in any way self-aware. He just wasn't a good paternal figure. And I don't know that I can necessarily hold that against him. We haven't spoken in, I don't know, eight years. I saw him out in public with um, what I realized later, who would later become his wife. Um, and I knew her. She's a family friend. Um, I had already known her and it, I don't know. I was like, wow, this is a really substantial relationship that you're having. And this is the first I realize its existence. And then it just occurred to me, like, we don't have a personal relationship. I thought every family had their own percentage of dysfunction. You know, just because people are flawed. It took me a long time to understand the difference between a dysfunctional family and, um, and a supportive family. You know, I knew my family wasn't necessarily supportive, but I never, I never outwardly thought of them as completely dysfunctional. I knew that, you know, my dad was not the nicest person and my mom, like, she just had some problems. But I thought every family was kind of like that to some degree. And then eventually, all right, well, I'm putting everything that I want for myself on hold in hopes that you guys will meet me halfway or somewhere. And eventually you just have to know your actions. This is a pattern. This is a conscious choice that each of you make. So I got to go. I always thought that I would do a psych degree and I would go into the mental health field. But really, I just worked. And I, I went to a community college, um, did an associate's degree. And then by the time it came to, to transfer to university, I just kind of gave up, you know? Like, I didn't have the self-esteem. I didn't think I was smart enough to go to a university or... Um, I don't know, I guess go into graduate work. So I went to an art school, um, studied for a little while, didn't really like it. I didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't feel as if I were creative enough. So I left. I don't know, I just moved to Portland. When I was a kid, I always wanted to live in San Francisco because, you know, that's, it's okay to be gay in San Francisco, right? That's, it's the Mecca. And then as I got older, it was like, but who can afford that city? And if you can, why would you want to? By that point in time, Seattle had already started to gentrify in a really extreme way. Portland was still affordable. It was okay to be weird here and uh, just be who you were. I, there were laws to protect queer people. All right, I'm going to abandon everything and go do what I think is best for me. I wanted to get out of arm's reach of my mom. And I knew that she would 
never come out here. It was in a relationship with somebody and we moved here together, which, you know, couples, <laughs> I've never known a couple to move to Portland that make it past a year. I don't know, this city just has like a, you move here and you break up for whatever reason. And that's exactly what happened. I went to Clackamas um, to a cabin for a weekend just to hang out with some friends. And when I came back on Sunday, he had packed his shit, waited for me, and was like, I'm leaving. Don't contact me again. I asked him why. He said, you're just like your mother. Instead of wanting to work on the issues in the relationship, his response was, well, I want an open relationship. And it was like, but we're not where we need to be. So why would I add more to a relationship when what's there needs to be resolved? I started drinking really, really heavily because, you know, I don't know how to handle that emotion. I just didn't have healthy coping skills. I would just sink into these horrible, like, depressive states and, you know, which is part alcohol. Um, but I just had a lot of anxiety. Um, I don't know, it just got really dark for a while. That you're like your mother comment, it just kind of... Maybe there's just a little bit of truth to that, and I got to find out how, and I got to fix whatever that is. So I went to a therapist. Took me a while to find one. I'm just like laying out childhood, and he uses, he doesn't demand two terms, but he suggests two terms. CPTSD for myself and borderline personality disorder for my mom. What the fuck? The world has completely changed at this point. And I realized that she was a victim of sexual abuse. And then it all made sense. I felt absolutely betrayed. Have you ever seen the movie August Osage County? It's about this wildly dysfunctional family. And I called her and I was talking to her and I asked her if she had ever seen it. And she said, no, but what's it about? I briefly explained and she said, oh, is it like the, does the father like fuck the daughter? Why would you say that? Why, why was that your assumption? And I chewed on that for like two months. Bam. Because your father assaulted you. As far as I was concerned, that was an admission. And then all of the things from little things that she had said from my childhood suddenly just flooded in. And she named me after that person. So I decided I was going to change my name. And I did. 
I mean, I called her and basically just explained. I saw a therapist. I've been seeing a therapist. And you and I need to have a discussion. Like, I have PTSD from childhood. And I think you have borderline personality disorder. And it was just bad. It was the last time we ever had a conversation. We had been estranged from that point forward. That could have been softer and um, a lot more compassionate. But I basically came at her the way that she came at me my entire life. And I know I, I realize it wasn't conscious or intentional, but she very much, even though she didn't realize it, took the innocence of my childhood away because there was so much responsibility. So I basically turned that around and put that right back on her. My mother died four years ago. Um, and we had been estranged for years. And I think it's it's different when your parent dies. Especially your mother. Because, at least for me, and I've other people I know who have been in similar situations, when your mother dies, regardless of what your relationship is like, for the first time you realize that there's no one in your corner the same way. You know, your mother is in your corner in a, I don't know, the the bond between a mother and a child, even if it's held by friction, it's still, I don't know. After her father and brother died, and when she had a back injury at work, and she fell into a pill addiction, that's just when everything fell apart. And I think that was the point in which, you know, she went from a mom to being a monster. When she was mad, she would she would walk through the halls and beat her fists into the walls. There's always a tension, and if there wasn't an active conflict, she would create a conflict. I now realize her relationship with her mom was probably so tense because she re- she hated the fact that her mother didn't protect her. I kind of realized years later that it's very likely my mother moved us, not just for the weather, but also, I kind of wonder if it was planned a little bit. She wanted to get us away from, you know, my dad's family. One of the biggest differences between PTSD and CPTSD is PTSD does have a specific time that you can go back to. This is when a traumatic event occurred and we can pinpoint and identify it. CPTSD is, it's a shot in the dark. There's no one point you can go back to. So really you're just taking guesses, you know? So I did Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, uh, which was designed for borderline personality disorder. Uh, We did Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. 
And I went through those pretty fast because, you know, I'm not a borderline. So it was really just picking up select skills. And then I did EMDR. And that was the most liberating thing I've ever done. Also the most difficult. But it was good. We isolated um, beliefs that I had just picked up and learned as a child. We had isolated those beliefs and very, very slowly went in to desensitize and reprocess. There were so many of them. Like one of them, obviously feeling like you, like I wasn't worth a family. Like I wasn't worth being part of like a healthy, nurturing family, which really at the core is self-esteem. I had internalized a lot of those types of beliefs And a lot of it, too, also was feeling abandoned, feeling useless and hopeless and unlovable and all of those things, especially, you know, you lose a partner and feeling like you don't, you didn't deserve that relationship and that you won't deserve a healthy relationship going forward. You know, when you realize like, oh, so that's often what happens to people who have been traumatized by someone when their abuser is no longer kind of looking over their shoulder, all of those symptoms just flood. And suddenly, like, all of the emotional dysregulation that was just kind of bottled up, it just spills out of you. And it happened because I wasn't really in contact with my mom anymore. Neither of them get a pass. Um, You know, like, I I recognize now that they both did the best that they could with the resources that they had. But I think with my mother, when she died, um, I still held so much anger to her. And it's, I just don't want to hold on to that much anger. Like, I deserve better than that. You know, had my mother still been alive today, I might have a totally different view on it. But it, you know, she's in the ground. Like, what is there to be angry about? And as time stretches me further away from healing from that, which, you know, is it lifelong? Sure, but it it gets to a point to where eventually it doesn't feel like work. It's just more automatic. It's like driving a manual transmission. Eventually you stop thinking about it. Portland really is so much better than, I mean, you've seen America, right? Like, this isn't the coolest country to live in. But I think people move here for a specific experience. I think people move anywhere for a specific experience. And I didn't get mine, which is totally for the best, right? Like, no regrets whatsoever. But I don't know that I want to try to recreate the dream that I had. Like, that that dream is just gone, and that's okay. I think the vast majority of people just walk around bleeding wounds on others. 
Even if it's unintentional, you know. I feel like most people live an unexamined life. It's difficult for me to to get close to people who don't have that sense of self-awareness. They remain acquaintances. I can't get any closer than that because I don't think that everybody has traumatic things that they have to deal with. But it's how aware you are of how you affect others. How good you are at communicating. How compassionate you can be for somebody else. I mean, those things are really, really critical for me to be able to get close to someone. You know, there are people who come from loving, happy, wonderful families who, you know, they've got like the picket fence and the dog and the whole shtick. And I think that's great. Okay, but you still have flaws. How aware are you of that? And how aware are you of how those flaws affect others? 